week, Ecclesiastes 9. The title of the message, it's, it's going to be a two-part message again. We, we just got out of a three-part message on authority, and now we're stepping into a two-part message simply for this reason. We're stepping into Ecclesiastes 9 now, and this is the fourth section, the fourth and final section of Ecclesiastes. There we go. The fourth and final section of Ecclesiastes. And because we're in this fourth and final section of Ecclesiastes, we are going to be finding uh, Solomon coming to some final conclusions. So up to this point, he's given qualified confusion, c- conclusions. Uh, he has talked about the life under the sun, and he's talked about things under the sun, and he's given us the fruit of his problems, and he's talked about vanity and vexation of spirit. Well, now we're going to be getting into some things that are more, if I can use the word, conclusive. And over the, these first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes 9, the topic in question will be joy. He's going to review some things, some of the, the statements he's already made about suffering and about suffering for the, the wicked and to the just alike. And then he's going to talk about joy. And what I'd like to do this morning in the first of a two-part message is actually define for you Joy. So this morning, we might say we'll be, we'll be topical. We're not going to actually spend our time in Ecclesiastes 9. We're going to walk through several other passages, and we're going to seek to biblically define joy. And then next week, we will walk through Ecclesiastes 9, having that definition in place, and we'll be able to understand perhaps a little better, without explanation, what Solomon is saying and those elements of joy that we can benefit from. So what is joy? Understood in a biblical sense, when we talk about joy, what are we talking about? Well, it's important to understand that when we talk about joy, we're not talking about happiness. They are not the same thing. When people think about joy, they often think about the concept of happiness. They often think about the concept of material circumstances in our lives and our emotional response to the circumstances, emotional, spiritual, or physical circumstances within which we find ourselves. But that's not really it. And so to answer our question, we're going to kind of walk through several passages of Scripture. And I would like for us to begin walking through today with Galatians 5. You may turn there if you'd like, and I'm going to uh, pick up the pace here in just a moment, as I normally do. Everything will be on the screen behind me, and I will read those passages for you. So uh, we'll be starting to move, but we will be in Galatians 5 for a few moments, so you're welcome to turn there. You, we will not be referencing Ecclesiastes 9 directly again, so you don't necessarily need to park there. And in Galatians 5, we read this beginning in verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. So the Bible tells us that at the moment of salvation, the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior through belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are given the Spirit of God. You are baptized by the Spirit of God, and you are made uh, a new creation in Christ. The Spirit of God indwells you. 
And when the Spirit of God indwells you, you are initiated into Jesus' death and resurrection. Your old man is crucified with Christ, and you are raised to walk in newness of life. This is spirit baptism. It is what we symbolize through physical baptism. Buried with him by baptism unto death, raised to walk in newness of life. The old man is dead and buried, and resurrected out of the tomb comes a new man, a new creation in Christ. That is the symbolism of the memorial of, of, of the, that proclamation that we call baptism. That is to show us what happens to us at the moment of salvation through spirit baptism. The power of sin over you is broken. The chains of sin are broken. You are adopted into the family of God and you're now a partaker of the divine nature. For those of you that have been coming on Tuesday nights, we're studying through First Peter, and we studied through that, right? That we are partakers in the divine nature. From this moment on, the Bible says you have two, nation, uh, two, two natures within you. You have an old man, which is your sin nature, your sinful desires, your sinful intents. It's called the flesh. And you have the new man, which is the Holy Spirit within you. Divine desires, divine intents, we call the Spirit. They both exist within you as a believer at any given moment. Your will decides whether you're submitting to the old man or whether you're submitting to the new man. Whether you're submitting to the flesh or whether you're submitting to the Spirit. One of the examples that I like to give, the illustrations I like to give when I speak to the people at the jail, is imagine you are a lamp, and that lamp is empowered by something. Before you are saved, you are plugged into sin, the flesh, the old man. There's nothing else that can empower you. Even if you make moral choices, even if you do moral things, it is still in the power of the old man. There's still a, a, a motivation. There's a pride motivation. There's, a, there, there, there's some sort of, uh, of old man motivation for what you're doing. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you get a new outlet. That's the Spirit. And you unplug from your sin nature and you plug into the Spirit and the Spirit empowers you. And because the Spirit is empowering you, it's giving you different priorities. It's giving you a different mindset. It's giving you different desires. And it's bearing different fruit. Now, as a believer, we can choose which outlet we plug into at any given moment. We can plug into our sin and live in the power of the, our sin, our old man, our flesh, or we can plug into the Spirit and live in the power of the Spirit. It's entirely impossible for you as a believer to live empowered by the old man, by the flesh. The difference is that you have a second nature in you, the new man, the ability to do right, and then, of course, you have the Spirit of God in you, convicting you, convincing you to do right. So when we read here in Galatians 5.16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What the Bible is telling us is that as we are plugged into the Spirit of God, as we are walking in the Spirit, we will not sin. We sin when we plug ourselves back into the flesh. So when we're walking in the Spirit, we are not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. They're both in there. The one contrary to the other, competing, uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul describes this concept, the good that I would I do not, but the evil that I would not that I do, and, and he says, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good, now that it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, right? And he goes through that whole, that, 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 that struggle between his, his, his new nature and his old nature in Romans 7. But the point is, 
What Paul is saying in Galatians 5 is that if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Lust, when it's finished, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. James tells us that. Which means we can live in holiness. We don't have to serve sin. The power of sin has been broken over us. So Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He says, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So Paul says we have a, a process here where we have to put off the old man and put on the new. We have to take off the deeds of the old and put on the deeds of the new. And what does Paul go on to describe? He says, let him that stole steal no more but rather work with his hands that he may have to give to them that have need. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Um, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. All of those that are Ephesians 4 put off the old and put on the new stuff, right? God wants you to walk in the Spirit. And when you're walking in the Spirit, you won't be sinning. You sin when you walk in the flesh, when you put on the old man again. So we go back to Galatians 5, where the Bible then introduces us to the works of the flesh. These are the things which are, which, which are the old man. These are the evidences of the old man within us. Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I have told, also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul gives us a list here. Now, we're not explicitly preaching this passage today, so I'm not going to go through and and define every one of these. I have preached through the entire book of Galatians. So I have preached Galatians 5, 19 to 21. I've defined each one of these words. We've talked about them in context. I would encourage you to go back and listen to them on the website if you are interested in doing so or if you're interested in more insight into these. But he gives a list here, and notice it's not a comprehensive list. He lists off a bunch of sins, and then he says and such like. So sin, we know, is anything that we say, we do, we think that is contrary to the nature of God, that is contrary to the character of God, or that is contrary to the will or word of God. And so sin is anything that offends God in His nature, or His will. And the works of the flesh is sin. Sin is the work of the flesh. Now let's take a brief moment to understand what it means that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. As with many things in life, we define what it means in part by understanding what it does not mean. Right? We define who we are sometimes by defining who we aren't. As a matter of fact, uh, on our webpage, we have a, uh, on our website, we have a page on our website, Legacy Baptist Church's website called What We Are Not. And when I've talked with people and they've read our website, they've said that that page is more helpful than any of the information on what we are. The page on what we aren't has been the most helpful to them. We are defining who we are by defining what we aren't. Right? Well, here's what we know about what this does not mean, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. 
and that not of ourselves, yourselves, excuse me, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We know that we are saved by faith and not by works. We know that avoiding sinful acts or living a moral life is not, nor has it ever been, sufficient to get oneself to heaven. That heaven is not obtained by morality, that heaven is not obtained by abstaining from certain actions and by pursuing other actions implicitly. In fact, wasn't this the whole problem with the Pharisees? And the Sadducees, we're studying it on Luke, uh, in Luke, Luke uh, on Sunday nights right now. Wasn't that the whole problem when Jesus called them whited sepulchers? When he said that the cup was clean on the outside but dirty on the inside? The point was that they had made themselves moral but on the outside, but they were still a mess on the inside. That no matter what they did externally, inside in their heart was still adultery and fornication and idolatry and hatred and murder and drunkenness and intemperance. And all of this stuff was still in their heart even though it wasn't in their actions. And in society, and indeed in many religions, that's enough. As long as you can bottle it up and keep it on the inside, it's okay. You're okay. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that if we have a heart that is still filled with adultery and fornication and idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and wrath and strife and envyings and murders and intemperance and these things, then there's still a problem. But these lessons also give us insight into what Paul is saying into Galatians chapter 5. As we consider this list, that man whose heart and mind is filled with sinful thoughts and sinful intents, whether or not they ever manifest in their actions, is a man who has not been redeemed, who has not had the power of sin broken over him. The man who loves sin... The man who is not under conviction when he sins. The man who has devoted himself to sin. The man who desires sin. The man who has no desire to do what's right. The man who has received no newness of life is not a believer. It's not to say that if you ever envy or if you ever get angry or if you ever uh, have an intemperance issue or commit adultery, you're not a believer. That's not what the Bible's saying. Quite to the contrary, if that were the case, then Paul would have no need to have written the epistles. If everything was taken care of for you at salvation, so that at salvation you stopped sinning, then the epistles were a big waste of parchment. All of this time teaching you not to sin would be a moot point if all you have to do is be saved and then you stop sinning. Right? But... The majority of the New Testament is devoted to helping you and I learn how to put off the old man and put on the new. Because there's a process of sanctification. We are going to still sin. Because the believer can walk in the flesh. But even if he does walk in the flesh, the Bible makes something very clear. That when a man is in Christ, there is a conviction... There is an internal recognition of sin, of wrong, and a a need to turn to Christ, and a need to repent. When a man or woman's thoughts or desires rest only upon the flesh, when a man devotes himself to a life of the flesh from the inside out, when a man or woman does not feel conviction over sin, when there is no chastening over sin, when a man or woman has no compulsion to serve God based upon what they know, they're not in the faith. Now, believers can be deceived, right? They can be deceived into searing their conscience. 
They can be led astray through false teaching. They can lack discernment and so live in sin. But a believer will not have a life of which their heart and mind are consumed with these sins. And so that's what Paul is saying here. When he says, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul continues, and this is where we're going with this this morning. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, to define the fruit of the Spirit. Notice what he says here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, he says, there is no law. These nine attributes form the essence of what it means to walk submitted to the Spirit of God, to plug yourself into the outlet of God's power, of God's Spirit. This is what it means. This is what will come out of you. Now, in the same manner as when you're, uh, when you're walking in the Spirit, Oh, excuse me, when you're walking in the flesh, your life will naturally manifest the things of the flesh. Your mindset, your heart, your desires will naturally manifest the things of the flesh. In that same manner, when you're walking in the Spirit, your life will naturally produce the fruit of the Spirit. These are not things which you need to conjure up in and of yourself. You don't need to wake up and say, okay, I am going to conjure up today these nine attributes. I'm going to discipline myself into these nine attributes. Rather, you wake up and you say, okay, today I am going to walk in the Spirit. I am going to submit myself to the leading of the Spirit of God. And as you submit yourself to the leading of the Spirit of God with a clean conscience before the Lord, this is what the Lord will lead you into. So that you will bear these things out naturally as you submit yourself to the Spirit. I don't have to coax an apple tree to produce apples and not peaches. If I plant an apple tree and an apple tree grows, and if it's going to produce any fruit at all, it's going to produce apples. If I want peaches, I plant a peach tree. If I'm walking in the Spirit, it's not going to produce sin. If I'm walking in the flesh, it is not going to produce righteousness. It might produce morality, but it will not produce righteousness. It might produce things that look like these things for whatever ulterior motives the flesh might have, but it will not produce them in sincerity by faith in the heart. And notice that the second characteristic on this list of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. I took you through all of this to get us to this point of understanding. The, 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 the concept of joy, biblical joy is not something that you produce. It is something that is produced in you. It is something that you determine. Biblical joy is not a circumstance. It's a disposition. It's not a feeling. It's a way of living. Biblical, biblical joy is produced in you as you walk in the Spirit. So, what is joy? We begin by understanding that biblical, biblical joy is produced in you. That it is something that, that is not a circumstance, it's a disposition. It's, it's something that you determine, not something that you produce, it's produced in you. And the neat thing about that is that that means that it doesn't depend on you. 
your circumstances, your feelings at the time, your happiness, how much money you have, who you know, who you don't know, what your job is, who, who, who you're married to, who, who your parents are. None of that is a factor or has to be a factor because it is something that can be produced in you by virtue of walking in the Spirit. So what is joy? Well, the Bible doesn't come out and give us a direct definition anywhere explicitly, so we're going to have to piece it together. We're going to derive a definition by understanding the times and the circumstances wherein joy can be found in the Bible. And we begin our little joy journey, if we can call it that, in John 15. Let's, let's start a joy journey. In this chapter, Jesus begins by likening himself to a vine and us to the branches that proceed out of the vine. This is you being plugged into the Spirit, right? Jesus uses a different picture. He doesn't say you are the lamp and I am the outlet. They wouldn't have really understood that at the time, I'm afraid. So what does he say? He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the trunk, you're the branch. He's using a vine and a branch because that's what a a grape... Uh, a, a grape plant would have. It's a vine, it's not a, a, a tree. And grapes are olives, uh, olives are from a tree, but grapes would have been very well known at the time, right? So he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches that come out of the vine. And he tells his disciples the only source of their power is himself. That when they disconnect themselves as branches from the vine, they lose their power source. They have to be empowered by something else, they'll be empowered by the flesh. But when they're connected to the vine, then they have the, the power of the vine, the nutrients of the vine flow through them and they will bear fruit. And Jesus says that herein is my father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So Jesus says in John 15 verses seven and eight, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be given unto you. Herein is my father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. He says, you truly want to be one of my disciples. Here's how you be one of my disciples. You walk in, in the, you walk in the spirit. You abide in me. You connect yourself to the vine. And then you'll bear much fruit and my Father will be glorified. He continues in John 15, verses 9 and 10. He says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Jesus tells them that they are commanded to abide in Him and abide in His love by keeping His commandments. And when they keep His commandments, Jesus tells them the results will be the presence of joy in their lives. And not just joy, but He says that your joy might be full. Fullness of joy. Now keep this tucked away in your minds as we consider some other circumstances within which joy manifests itself. But may I just say this before we move on. The point that Jesus is making is is if you're a new creation in Christ, if you have been given this new nature, you're a partaker of the divine nature, then you now have a purpose. You are elect. You are elect unto a purpose. That's what election always is talking about in the Bible. And that purpose is to glorify the Lord. When my wife and I were down in Florida, we were driving one day, and we drove by a truck. And as we drove by that truck, my wife and I looked at the truck, and it was just mud. 
from bumper to bumper, mud everywhere. Yeah, the, you, you couldn't even see out the windows except for the, the you know, where the windshield wipers were. There was, that was cleaned off, but everything else was so thick mud. We're not talking about a little bit of mud. We're talking about caked on thick. And as we're driving by, my wife looked at that and she said, now there's a happy truck. That's what she said. Now there's a happy truck. And we kept driving. I knew exactly what she meant. And, and, and at the time it was just a statement. But as I thought about it, it became somewhat profound to me. Why would we look at a truck that's covered in mud from bumper to bumper and say, now there's a happy truck? Because that truck was doing what it was made to do, right? That truck was being used to the fullest of its potential. You see these people driving around in their trucks and you know it's never done a day of work in its life. And you say, okay, I'm glad you're driving a truck, but it's not functioning. You know, you see a truck with a Lincoln, uh, a Lincoln uh, uh, emblem on it and you say, that truck is probably not functioning in the purpose that a truck was designed to function. Now, we all want to keep our cars nice. We don't want dents and dings and such. But if you use a truck the way it's supposed to be used, it's going to get a little dirty. It's going to get a few dings. It's going to get a couple of scratches because it's doing what it needs to do. If it never hauls, if it never pulls, if it never does any of that, well, okay, you've got a truck, but it's not really accomplishing its purpose. That's not why trucks were designed. What Jesus is telling us in John chapter 15 is that you, as a new creation in Christ, as a creation made in the image of Christ, as a partaker of the divine nature, will be happiest when you're connected to the vine. And the world will tell you, don't connect to the vine. Don't connect to the vine. Don't don't separate yourself from the world. Don't do those things that are distinct from the world around you. Don't put off concerning the old man and put on the new man. You're going to lose out on fun. You're going to lose out on enjoyment. You're going to lose out on things. And what Jesus is telling you is, I guarantee you, you will, you cannot be happier than when you're doing what I've created you to do. And we have a choice to make. Connect yourself to the vine or don't. Plug into the flesh or plug into the spirit. Jesus is telling us we've been designed for something. And that when we meet that purpose, we will have fullness of joy. Let's continue. We're going to go to the book of Acts. Acts verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 4 through 8. We read this. Therefore they were scattered abroad, uh, they that were scattered abroad, excuse me, went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. We see in this first instance that a city is brought to a state of great joy. And they're brought to that state of great joy as a man of God comes into the city, preaches the gospel, begins healing people, begin, and they begin to see these miracles being worked in the name of of Jesus Christ. They witnessed the power of God in their lives and in the lives of others, and it brought them to a place of joy. Philip went into the city of Samaria. He preached the gospel. He performed miracles. Unclean spirits were cast out of people. Those with ailments were healed, and the city was filled with joy. And this was a manifestation of the power of God in their lives, that it was producing joy, even in the midst of, by the way, difficult circumstances. Philip had to flee Jerusalem because of persecution. The people of Samaria were a people that were not accepted among the Jews. We consider next Acts 13. 
Give you a little context before we read a couple verses. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch of Pisidia preaching the gospel. The Jews heard the gospel and they had pretty well rejected it. A few people had accepted it, but by and large, they rejected it. So then Paul and Barnabas begin preaching to the Gentiles who with great gladness received the gospel. But this did not well please the Jews. And so we pick up in Acts 13, beginning in verse 45, where we read this. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, that would be the Jews, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So he says, look, we gave it to you. You said, no, we don't want what you're offering. So we turn to the Gentiles and are offering it to them. The gospel is, is, is open to everybody. We go to the Jews first, but then we go to the Gentile world. We skip to verse uh, 40, uh, 49 where we read this. And the word, uh, excuse me, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet, their feet again, uh, excuse me, against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. We find a record here of extremely difficult circumstances. Paul and Barnabas uh, are under persecution. They are cast out of the city. They have to move on to another city because of the amount of persecution that they experience. The disciples who remained in the city uh, had great joy in the Holy Ghost, and yet no doubt their circumstances were difficult as well. Yet we see joy. How is it that circumstances... Okay, how is it? That you can be persecuted for your faith. You can be beaten. You can be maimed. Some people can even be killed. But you can feel joy. In those moments, I guarantee you, you're not necessarily feeling happiness. The circumstances are not good. But that doesn't mean you can't have joy. Same circumstance comes up in Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas are on their way to Jerusalem to testify of Gentile salvation. As they go, they pass through the churches in the regions of Phoenicia and Samaria. This is not a persecution uh, um, um, passage, but notice what we, we read in Acts 15, verse 3. And being brought on their way by the churches, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. See, what we're seeing, the, the, the string that we're seeing of truth in regard to joy is that it's people who are manifesting the power of God in their lives and in others' lives, and as they see the power of God being worked out in themselves and in others, it produces in them a joy, regardless of their circumstances. Paul was praying to the Lord for his thorn in the flesh, which some people assume upon. We don't actually know what it was. But he was praying and he asked the Lord three times to remove it from him. You remember what the Lord told him? Paul says, but he answered and said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul there was experiencing a circumstance where he was having a, ter- a, a, a terrible ailment, a thorn in the flesh. He said it was a messenger from Satan to buffet him, something that he begged God to remove from him. Nevertheless, God says, when you are weak, I am strong. My strength is sufficient for thee. That's the kind of circumstance 
where seeing the power of God to give us grace in the times of hardship will produce joy. Will bring us to a level of joy. As we continue into the book of Romans, we find the concept of joy deeply foundational to a life in Christ. In Romans 14, Paul exhorts God's people to have deep care for the spiritual health of, of believers who struggle to understand their liberty in Christ. And the issue at hand in Romans 14 is the eating of meat offered to idols. There were those in the faith who did not want to eat the meat that was offered to idols because it had been offered to demons before it was being consumed. And they say it is not right that we should have fellowship with demons, so we are not going to eat this meat that was offered to idols. However, other people said, look, it's just uh, it's just a ritual, it's just a sham, these, things, these aren't even real gods, we can eat the meat. And so Paul begins to discuss with them this importance. And he says, you're right. You can eat the meat. You have every liberty in Christ to do so. However, is eating the meat worth offending your brother in Christ? And he says, rather than resent those people who have this high standard, who won't eat the meat or who don't understand their liberties, lovingly help them, serve them, Love them. Understand that we'll stand before God not for whether or not we understood and exercised our liberties, but for whether or not we served and loved the brethren. Paul specifically speaks towards those who understand their liberty in Christ to eat the meat offered to idols. And he says, don't resent those who won't eat the meat. He calls for them to be deferential to those who struggle with their liberties. Carefully and lovingly accommodating their concerns. And within this context, Paul says this in Romans 14, beginning in verse 15. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Paul says the essence of the kingdom of God is not about whether or not you exercise your Christian liberties. The essence of the kingdom of God is whether or not you walk in righteousness, peace, and joy. So it is that as we trace the concept of joy in order to form a biblical definition, we find that again, a, that joy is an outworking of the power of God as God's people, regardless of the standard by which they are living, as long as it's within their liberties in Christ, that God's people are submitted to the power of God, to the will of God, to the word of God, and it's working in them the spiritual reality of joy. The same concept comes up in Romans 15, verse 13. As Paul blesses his readers, he says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in faith that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Joy and peace in believing, in the outworking of, the, of God and the Holy Ghost in your life rooted in faith. Now there's one more verse I want us to consider before we attempt to define biblical joy. And this verse is found in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul writes in chapter 8 to inform the church of Corinth, which was in the region of Achaia, about the churches up north, in Macedonia, and the, the, the state of those churches. And notice what Paul says about them in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. He says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, 
The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. The men and women in these churches were being deeply persecuted. As a matter of fact, if you study First and Second Thessalonians who were in Macedonia, that their, their church was in Macedonia, you'll find that these people had lost many loved ones to persecution. We might liken it similarly to what's happening to the Christians over in Syria right now at the hands of ISIS. They're being beheaded. Their houses are being burned down. They're losing everything. Their children are being sold into slavery for the name of Christ. And, and, and as these things are happening, this persecution brought about in their lives great poverty. They lost everything. They couldn't get jobs. They were blackballed. They were blacklisted. They lost their families. Many of their breadwinners most likely were, were killed. Probably a lot more women and children in the church for that reason. And yet Paul says, in this poverty, in this persecution... Their abundant joy caused them liberality. He was talking about their giving. They heard about the needs in Jerusalem. And in their poverty and in their persecution, they said, we're going to round, out, round up every penny that we can to give to the needs of the believers in Jerusalem. Paul says, what would, what, 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 as we think about that, not Paul says, as we think about that, what would induce people who are living in poverty and persecution for the name of Christ to take what little they have and to give it to people they've never met? Paul says, it was the abundance of their joy. That though they were in hard times and circumstances, their joy was going through the roof. They'd never been more joyful because they were able to see the Lord working in them in, in brand new ways. Because God was providing for their needs. And they were so joyful that even in their poverty, it abounded unto the riches of their liberality. That when they were poor and persecuted, they gave more, well more than they could afford. Because of their joy. The outworking of a spiritual perspective which operates apart from circumstances and is driven by the spiritual outworkings of divine power in the lives of us and others. And so James writes, Brethren, James 1 verses 2 and 3, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing that this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Count it joy when you're going through temptations, when you're going through trials, when you're going through persecutions. This should heighten your joy because now you can have the Lord working in you in brand new ways. Because now the power of Christ can be more powerful in you. Because now God can show Himself even more strongly in your life. It will increase your joy. John writes the epistle of 1 John in order to instruct believers about the blessings of fellowship. And as we continue to walk through these verses, in 1 John, which is really a commentary on Jesus' teaching in John 13 to 17, we read this in verses 4 through 7. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. 
And this is where we come full circle in our teaching on joy. If we walk in the light, if we walk in the Spirit, if we abide in the vine, if we live in the new man, if we plug ourselves into the outlet of the new man, then we have fellowship one with another, then we are walking in fellowship with God, and as we're walking in fellowship with God and one another, the Lord is working, we have unity in the Spirit, there are, are, is the Lord's faithfulness in our circumstances, we're not under chastening, He's able to produce fruit in us, and one of the things which He will produce in you is joy. And then as you're living out what God has asked you to do through obedience, you're that happy truck who has been doing what he was designed to do and there's a fullness of joy. So let's put it together. What is biblical joy? Biblical joy is a deep and genuine delight existing apart from physical circumstances rooted in a recognition of God's presence and power in one's own life and the lives of others. In other words, when I see God providing for the needs of people in our assembly, we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those that rejoice, we pray for our people, we pray for their needs, we pray for these families, and as we see them overcome and we see them come through and we see God show Himself faithful, it should produce in me joy. And as you see God be faithful in your own life, and as I see God be faithful in my own life, and my own private prayers, and my prayer closet, and my own almsgiving, and all of those things that I'm doing privately that nobody even knows about, and I see God doing great things, it produces in me joy. And as I'm going through suffering, and I remember the promises, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, and I understand that God has a plan, and that He's in control, it produces in me joy. So that I'm in pain, so that I'm not necessarily happy today, so that things aren't going the way I would want, but you know what? God loves me. God is in control. God is good. And there can be joy. Apart from my circumstances. So what is joy? It's a deep and genuine delight, existing apart from physical circumstances, Rooted in a recognition of God's presence and power in one's own life and in the lives of others. Are you, are you experiencing biblical joy today? Second question. Where does biblical joy come from? Well, we've answered this as well. Biblical joy is a product of the power of the Holy Spirit manifest in the life of a born-again believer. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today? If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've been going through the motions, if you're that person in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, who looks great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones, inside you're still full of the hatred, and you're still full of the adultery, and you're still full of the fornication, and you're still full of the intemperance, and the, the, the revelings, and, and all of those things, and, and on the inside there's never been a change. You've never lived out the realities of the redeemed life. You've never been made a new creation in Christ. You have no part in this. You can have happiness, but you cannot experience biblical joy. But if you are in Christ, then you can. But you're not just going to conjure it up. You're not just going to walk in the flesh one day and say, but you know what? I'm going to be joyful. It comes through submission to the Spirit of God. It comes through attaching yourself to the vine. It comes through plugging yourself into the new man. And then joy will begin to be produced. How do we find biblical joy? Walking in the Spirit. Consistent, 
personal relationship with Jesus Christ by submission and obedience. Confessing your sins before the Lord, being in right fellowship with Him, and obeying His Word. That's when you are doing what you've designed, you've been designed to do, and that is where fullness of joy will be found. But pastor, full, uh, the, the world tells me fullness of joy is found in the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yes, it does. And you see how well that's working out for the world around us. And there are many a believer who has been convinced that this world offers them the happiness they're seeking. And so they go off and they pursue it. We're going to be talking, in, not this Sunday, but next Sunday about the prodigal son a little bit. A young man who said the world out there has things to offer me so he got his father's inheritance and he went out and he wasted it in riotous living. And when he came to himself, he finds himself in a pig pen eating the husks that are that are, are, are from a pig and he says, how many of my father's servants live better than I do in the squalor of my circumstances? I often tell the people that I talk to at the jail, we've talked about it before as well, that when a believer goes out to the world and seeks to live in the world, not necessarily in the world, right? So I'm not saying you can't use the world. The Bible says we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Paul says as using the world, but not abusing the world, right? That when they go out and they seek to make the world their, 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 their object, they seek to make the things of the world, the, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in the life, which is not of the Father, but which is of the world, when they devote themselves to those things, thinking that in those things is found happiness, because the people of the world and the, the philosophies of the world and the concepts of the world say it is in those things where there is happiness, and they do so, it's like a child who has been pulled out from the gutter by the king and cleaned up and set at the king's table and the king says you don't have to be hungry any longer and you don't have to live in rags any longer I've provided something better for you I have I have made you my child and then you push yourself back from the table and you go back out into the streets and you put out the rags and you start begging for food again that's a good picture of what it's like when a believer is living in sin. You have all of the blessings of God provided for you. You have the banquet table. You have the nice food. You have a warm bed. And instead, you're living in the gutter, in rags, begging for food. You'll never find fullness of joy there. Fullness of joy comes from being where God has designed you to be, doing what God has designed you to do. So let's put it all together. Biblical joy is a deep and genuine delight rooted in recognition of God's presence and power in one's own life and in the lives of others, produced by the power of the Holy Spirit as He manifests Himself in the life of a born-again believer, found by walking in the Spirit through a consistent personal relationship with Jesus Christ by submission and obedience. Now, that's not going to be an easy, roll-off-your-tongue, memorized definition. But that's what joy is. This is biblical joy. 
It's not a circumstance, it's a disposition. It's not a feeling, it's a lifestyle. It's rooted in a spiritual state, not a physical state or a physical condition. And more than that, it is not dependent upon a physical state or a condition in order to be brought about. And this is essential to understand and to appreciate. Joy is not an outworking of what is happening in your life at any given moment, but rather where you are abiding or in whom you are abiding at any given moment. Joy is not where you are or what you are, it's in whom you are. And if joy is all about Christ, being in Christ and living out the relationship that you have in Christ, then the reality of the situation is just as Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh so that we know that if we were able to walk every moment of every day in the Spirit, we would not sin. Now we're going to sin because nobody does that, but we should and we can. But what that means is that you can live every moment of every day for the rest of your life in joy. And that when you aren't living in joy, it's because something isn't right. It's because something isn't working right in your spiritual life. Because joy is your portion. Joy is your inheritance. Joy is what God purchased for you when He sent His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you. He purchased for you joy. He bought for you joy. He made provision for you to have joy. Again, if you've been here on second, uh, uh, on Tuesday nights as we're walking through Second Peter, we've been talking about that. Peter begins Second Peter chapter 1 by telling you everything that has been established for us. By everything that God has purchased for us, so that then He can encourage us to claim it. How do we claim it? By walking in the Spirit. We live in a world that's surrounded by pain and sorrow. But more than that, we live in a world that is absolutely surrounded by discontent, longing, depression. What people don't have, they want. What people have, they don't appreciate. We live in a world lacking in contentment, lacking in calm, lacking in peace, lacking in joy. And while we would expect this of those in the world, we should not expect it of those that have been called out of the world. We are called to live on a different plane. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you're not living in joy. I'm trying to tell you that you can be there. This is not me saying, look, you're, you're, you're doing something wrong. This is me saying... Come, come, come to joy. It's, it's here for you. It's been, it's been provided for you already. Just come to joy. Are you defined by joy today? I'm not asking if you're happy. I'm asking if you're joyful. I'm not asking if your circumstances are good. I'm asking if you are abiding in Christ in the midst of those circumstances. The majority of the world, many Christians included, Live in a state of emotional and spiritual inconsistency. A roller coaster ride, if we could call it that. Their emotional and spiritual state follows their circumstances. If they have positive self-worth, if things are going well in their lives, if they've been unusually motivated or encouraged by someone or something, then they experience spiritual and emotional highs in which they are happy for that particular moment in time. But then when things go bad, when they hit the bottom... Their self-worth falters. Their circumstances turn. 
They fall short of motivation or encouragement. They haven't been listening to those self-help things for a little while, whatever it might be. They fall short emotionally and spiritually. They become a wreck. They lose motivation. They can't function. They don't do anything anymore. They cut themselves off from their friends. Uh, some people go to extremes. Suicide is epidemic today because of these highs and lows of the emotional experience. So life becomes an emotional and spiritual roller coaster. Many Christians live on a spiritual roller coaster of highs and of lows, of on and of off, of contentment and discontentment. And here's the thing about this kind of living. Guess where it keeps our focus? Right here. Whether you're talking about the believers or unbelievers, this kind of living of, spirit, of, of just allowing our circumstances to dictate our emotions and allowing our circumstances to dictate our spiritual well-being is constantly refocusing my, myself on me. And if anybody knows anything, I know this, that when you focus on yourself, things are not going to go very well. There's no time to grow and progress because we keep having to dig ourselves out of the same emotional and spiritual ruts over and over and over again. I dig a hole and then I start feeling better about myself and I fill in the hole and then I fall back into the hole again. And I climb out of the hole and then I fall back into the hole and then I climb out of the hole and I fall back into, my, into the hole. And, I, and it's just the same old over and over and over and over and over again. Every circumstance shoots me back down into the hole. Now, every time something doesn't go as I expect, it drops me back into the hole. And so what am I doing? I'm constantly focusing on me. I need my circumstances to be perfect. I need my situation to be perfect so that my emotions can be right, so that my spirit can be right. I have to create an environment. I have to erect around me an environment that can keep my emotions in check, that can keep my spiritual life in check. And if I don't have this incubated environment, this, this nice little area, this safe space, then I become a wreck because I'm living dependent upon circumstances and it's all about me. But what happens if it doesn't become about me anymore? What happens if it becomes about the one who has redeemed me? What happens if my perspective changes? Biblical joy pulls us out of this cycle because biblical joy takes myself off of me. I'm no longer looking at my circumstances and saying everything depends upon my circumstances. I'm now looking at the one who saved me. Biblical joy is not founded upon myself. It's founded upon God. It's founded upon His Word. Biblical joy stems not from my own power, but from the power of the Holy Spirit within me. Not from my circumstances, but from God's character. Joy establishes a consistency. Whereby, regardless of the ups and the downs of circumstances, we live on a plane above those circumstances, which understands God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Now, notice as I did this, I didn't quite make the line of emotions and spirituality as straight as joy. I don't know if this is as accurate as it could be, but let me tell you this. Emotions are still going to go up and down. Now, for some of us, that's going to be a bit more of that than others. Uh, with medical conditions, of course, there might be other spikes as well. And, and, and those things happen. But what I'm saying here is that when we keep ourselves above ourselves, it changes things. 
Joy stabilizes our spiritual and emotional states, giving us a general consistency to live above the circumstances within which we find ourselves. And I'm not saying there won't be a spiritual or emotional ups and downs. We are sinners. We are imperfect. And as I mentioned, there's medical things involved there. There are reasons why some people struggle emotionally. Uh, and then there are, there are weak points for all of us. But by God's grace, a life lived in reliance upon God taps into God's divine power to get above circumstances and perceptions in our lives. So that when times get tough, God meets us where we are. And if God meets us where we are in those times of difficulty as well as in those times of happiness, then no matter where we are, if we're abiding in the Lord, even if our emotions aren't quite what they should be, even if spiritually we're not quite where we should be, we can have joy. Because it's not produced by us, is it? It's produced by the Spirit of God within us. As we abide in Christ and rely upon God's grace, we'll find joy. Now, next time we're together, we're going to consider Solomon. And he's going to speak to us about four areas of life wherein we should joy. He will call us unto joy. So we spent our time today defining joy so that when we get there tomorrow, when we read what Solomon is saying about joy... We'll be, able, uh, we'll be able to understand what we're, what we're talking about. I don't know if I said tomorrow, but next week if I said tomorrow. For today, though, however, let me ask you this question. Do you have a joyful life? Are you living in joy? Not happiness. Joy. Are you allowing your emotions, your spiritual state, your spiritual condition, is it all riding on the roller coaster of your circumstances? Or do you recognize the God who transcends circumstances? Do you recognize that the God who loves you lives above circumstances and will give you the grace to meet the needs that you're in, whatever they are, whether small or great, right now, so that you can have joy, a genuine and deep delight because you know that God is working and you're seeing God working. Pastor, this is impossible. You don't understand my life. You don't understand my struggles. You don't understand my circumstances. And you might be right. But on the authority of God's word, I don't have to. Because God does. And this isn't about me and you. This is about you and God. This is about your relationship with him. This is about Jesus telling you that your joy can be full in John 15. This is about John writing in 1 John 1 that your joy may be full. This is about those who in deep persecution, far more than anyone in this room, having the abundance of joy in their lives, abounding in their poverty to great liberality. God knows. And if you're a born-again believer, then God does not want you living under the circumstances that you face. That's not where God wants you resting. God doesn't want you stuck on yourself struggling through the circumstances on your own and living emotionally and spiritually under the weight of those circumstances. God wants you to attach yourself to Him and so, though the circumstances are still going to be there, live emotionally, spiritually on a plane above them. 
I'm not telling you that the circumstances themselves will necessarily change, but I'm telling you that God has provided through his son the grace to endure those circumstances with deep and genuine delight. So are you walking in the spirit today? That's what it comes down to. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Are you tapped into the, the vine on this one? And so bearing the fruit of joy in your life or have you allowed, again, this is not me trying to guilt you, but have you allowed the world, the flesh of the devil to strip from you that which is your right in Christ? Let's close in prayer.